You're listening to Inside the Ropes, Australia's must-listen-to golf show with exclusive content from both home and abroad. Subscribe through your favourite podcast app or listen at golf.org.au. G'day, everybody. Welcome to the show. Great to have you with us. Great to be back after a couple of weeks just uh, kicking back, spelling with the children. Uh, episode number 172 of Inside the Ropes is back with us as some of us dive back deep into the life of quarantine and lockdown and wondering about golf and where it fits in and what we're supposed to do and playing two balls and all the rest of it. Hazy, this crazy world in which we live uh, continues to change almost on an, on an hourly by daily basis at the moment. How are you, my friend? Um, as well as can be expected, Andy, I've dodged the, uh, the lockdown uh, barrier personally, but I feel for you and, and five million others in the, in the Melbourne region who are back inside it. And I can honestly say here that I hope that other states don't endure what Victoria has for the last few weeks. And, um, you know, we wish you, you guys all the best right around the country in uh, staying as free as possible. Just do what you can do to stop the spread of it, obviously, and stay as free as you can. Here, here. That's we all need to sort of do what we can. I think that's that's the message that surely yeah. has been well and truly received by now. Hey, we got a big show today. We have got a really interesting show. We're going to be talking all sorts of stuff today. I can't wait to. I've never had the the pleasure of meeting Bob Tui, but we're going to be joined by him on the show today. I know who he is, and I know about his contribution to golf. But um, I'm very much looking forward to catching up with him, Hazy. There wouldn't have been too many people who have made as significant a contribution to the game. In Australia, as he has, I'd, I'd suggest. I reckon Andy will find that we're going to struggle to get it all into a you know a mm. relatively short podcast time frame. What he's actually done, but you know he he was not too long ago made a a life member at Glenelg Golf Club, uh, and it sort of caps I don't know sixty odd years of not only mm. involvement with Glenelg specifically, but the sport. And he's still involved. Don't get me wrong; he's still heavily involved. I can't wait to talk to him because uh, from being a good junior to being a promoter to being a sort of a, a an accomplice with the stars, bring them all to Australia, mm. Mm. from mm. being a course designer, from being a... Yeah, there's so many aspects to his life. Um, and I, you're right, I reckon he'd be in the top... There wouldn't be many, maybe two or three people who have had a bigger impact on Australian golf in more sections than Bob Tui. Mm. Uh, remarkable no, man he's... and still very actively involved. He's a, he's a great great man. He's ticked a lot of boxes. Um, Al Whittaker's going to join us in the third segment. She's, she's going to drive that for us. Now, it was this week, I think it was this weekend coming up that we'd be enjoying the Open Championship mm-hmm. uh, of 2020. We're clearly not going to be doing that, but there is going to be a, a virtual playing of the Open Championship, um, which is which a fascination to me to learn a bit more about this. What, what do you know of it? Well, Ali's going to talk to Iona, who's involved with the promotion of it uh, later in the show, and uh, she'll give us great insights into what it actually is. But generally speaking, it's going to be called the Open for the Ages, and it's going to be a three-hour show sort of incorporating 50 years of archival footage. Uh, we did mention it briefly last last week, but all the champions from the different eras. So from McElroy and Woods back to uh, Bayesteros and Feldo and back to Tom Watson, uh, Jack Nicholas, and, and others. Uh, it's going to be absolutely epic. So they've got 
they've actually uh, found the footage. They're going to run modern graphics and commentary over it, and they're going to play uh, almost like a you know a, a ghost call of a Melbourne Cup, for example. But it's going to be video um, with all the great champions of the Opens uh, that we all come to know and love. So if they've That's got footage, they're, so- they're going to be in the tournament. Yeah, it's going to be, the, you know, nothing will be the substitute, but it's going to be the next best thing. So let's cross to 17. Nakajima's in the road. He's in the, he's in the, he's in the bunker. He's, uh, he needs to get up and down here to keep his chances alive. And they'll, they'll, I imagine they'll be taking all the great moments of Open Championships past and splicing them in. That's based on what you've said and the little I know about it and try and create a story of an event using all of these, and we all, there's thousands of them that big and small, that I'm sure we can all remember that, you know, Van, Jean Van, who, who knows how far they're going to go with this stuff. It could be a whole lot of fun. It could be yeah. fascinating to see how it all comes together. I think the thing that I'm interested in finding when you have a, say, let's go back to horse racing for a second. If you have a Melbourne cup for the ages, you sort mm. of know that, um, Maccabi Diva and Farlap are going to be bobbing it out at the finish line to see who wins. You sort of know that. You're not going to have a clue what they're going to do here because you could make a case for seven or eight of these guys to to be right in the mix. I don't mm. think it's a fait accompli that you know Jack Nicholas wins with a leg in the air. So, geez, I'm getting some good racing. Oh, who are you tipping, here, Andy? Who who are you tipping? Mm, I wouldn't mind betting that Tom Watson's a lot closer than what? we think. Well, that's exactly what I was. You and I are thinking exactly alike. Particularly, is it going to be played in Stuano? Of course, it's going to be you know virtually played on, or is it a celebration of many? Yeah, who knows? But I, I don't um, know. It's probably. It, I would imagine that it would be more the the traditional rotor because they'll have more images from St Andrews than they will of the yeah. other courses, for example. But you know, they're not going to. It's not going to be possible if you wanted to get, um, you know, the the jewel in the sun, for example. That's clearly not. At St Andrews, so how they're going to do all that stuff is, mm. is it actually it's not going to be epic. Don't get me wrong, but it's going to be fascinating. I reckon. Be, so I can't wait be interesting. to see Ellie and Iona. Yeah, it'll be great. Yeah, I think it will. So we'll know more a bit later on in the show. Uh, okay, I'll put you on the spot. If we're doing this show together in uh, what is he now? Twenty three. If we're doing this show together in uh, twenty seven years, and the bloke's celebrating his fiftieth birthday, whenever it might be. Will Colin Morikara have won a British Open, an Open Championship? Apologies, Clayton Huggy. Will he have won an Open Championship? Or, or how many do you think he'll have won by the time he turns 50? Yeah, I, well, the jury's out on how he travels and plays on links, so that's the only yep. rider on what you're asking me. But if if his game travels, travels well over the Atlantic, I see that being a multiple number because... Um, if based on no other evidence, Andy, than the fact that he has now joined Tiger Woods as the only person to have won two PGA Tour events, having missed only one cut. So, you know, you, you it's need to, when you, I mean, that's an obscure statistic, yes, but when your name bobs up alongside legends of the game in these things, as small as they might be at the moment, they're the things you sort of cling to in my eyes. And look, he has got the most unbelievable iron game we don't see many mid-long iron games anymore his are pure they are as pure as they get he he could have had on that final round where he sort of ran down justin thomas and, and won at muirfield village on the weekend he could have had three holes in one quite i mean that's how that's how he hit the pin once and it could have easily dropped in and he knocked the absolute stuffing out of a couple of flags 
uh, on the way through, got, like knocked it in fr- from you know long range. From long range, um, he he knocked it to two feet uh, another couple of occasions. His ability to control the ball is 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 insane. Now I don't know whether he's he's clearly he's a good enough putter to be a world class player. He's already up to I don't know he's up to number thirteen in the world or something already. Which thirteen? Yeah, there you go. No, and I know there's a bit of an asterisk on world rankings at the moment because not everybody's back playing and you know some people are going to be ascending and descending um, you know kind of a bit more rapidly than they might otherwise be but if if he's if he's an if he's an adequate putter and we saw him miss the short one to lose a couple of weeks ago and and he and he only made a real short one in the left-hand side to get to keep going against Thomas in regulation that was a really iffy little kind of three-footer um, that well, almost missed um, did you see it? Uh, that was that was one of mine. That was how bad it was. That was a oh, really yeah. bad pull. So, but so I, I don't you know, know whether I counter that Andy with with the one that he made in the um, on the first playoff hole, which was <laughs> one of the all time great answering putts. Because not only did he make a twenty four footer downhill and curling both ways, but he did it on the back of answering one of the most demonstrative vocal pumped up I, I, like I could go on and probably say a couple of things I really don't want to say about Justin Thomas here but he is a beast of a competitor and for him mm. to roll in a 51 foot putt with on one of the most famous courses on that tour and da 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 goes on Colin Morikawa to focus in and go bang and, and drop one on top of him says probably more to me than the little tiddler he scraped in 20 minutes earlier yeah no doubt like he's it's clearly it, it if if not everything can be perfect all the time, and everybody's got a weakness. And if his weakness, in inverted commas, is the putter, he's clearly not a bad enough putter to not be able to win because uh, he's making a habit of doing that. He's making a habit of contending. He's only 23 years of age. People who have seen him play, and I've never seen him play in the flesh, but I was reading Shackelford and a few others that have watched him play and have charted the course of his ascension. He's, he's done it. In a tradition, he plays a traditional brand of golf. He's not a monster. He's not seeking, you know, the sort of Deschambeau type. I want to brutalise golf courses. He, he's not that type of player. He gets it out there, but he's not ever going to overpower golf courses. He he's, there's a, there's an art um, apparently to the way he plays. Um, you mentioned he's kind of control of long irons. We don't we don't see the Kepkas and the mm. Deschambeaus of the world hit anything, but. Seven or nothing more than it. They never hit. I'm sure. I don't even know what they carry anymore. But I doubt they carry three, four, two, three, four irons in their bags anymore. They, they probably do because they're, they've got that a number of clubs that can, can cater to that. But they would very rarely use them. But this guy, this guy doesn't mind pulling out a five iron and hitting it 195, 200 meters if he has to. And um, he's not afraid of of the iron play, and he's he's something quite special, I think. The, the other thing about him, Hazy, and this is you mentioned the statistical um, comparison to Tiger. There's something about him that is Tiger esque in his ability to lock in to nothing but golf. It, it, it's just he doesn't seem to be reading about him. He doesn't seem to be distracted by anything. It's very much about the game. And when he's in the hunt, he don't win everything, but he's winning enough and he's contending enough. And he he looks like he can really bear down. And I think once his reputation grows and grows and grows, he might become one of these really intimidating 
type forces. When you see the name bob up um, on a Sunday afternoon, I go, oh, here he comes again, this bloke. He might have a little bit of that about him, I reckon. Well, he's only played 25 times in the last two years since he turned pro. He's got two wins, two seconds, five other top 10 finishes outside those four. And he's missed one cut, Andy. That's a hell of a start to your career when, you know, it's an accepted it's accepted wisdom that, you know, you've got to learn to lose. You lose more before you learn to win. And he's, as you're rightly saying in my ears, that's something that he doesn't have to worry about. He looks really good under the gun. What did he do the week after he missed his cut? Or the next time he teed it up? That was he, this one. He, so he, yeah, he, he won. The Travellers Championship was the very first one, so he's won. He's, he's finished second in um, at Colonial a few weeks ago. Uh, the Heritage, he was only 64th. Missed a cut at the Travellers and then comes out and wins um, the charity one. So the Workday Charity. So... Amazing. I, we we talk every week. We seem to talk about you know, oh, Dustin Johnson's dominating or Kepka's dominating or whatever. This guy has the chance to um, compete with these guys in in the medium term, I believe, if he's not already. Oh, he he, and you know what? Tiger's back this week, and we still love him, and he's still a you know, he's still box office and all that sort of stuff. The game's all right. The game's going to be okay. It is actually going to be okay when Tiger goes. It won't be the same, and it'll take some time. And we'll miss him and everything he brings. And he's still going to be around for a while. It's not as if he's turning it up this week and we'll never see him again. But you, you see, you know, Victor Hoyland finishes third. And Thomas is, you know, coming into his speech. You think will find his... He'll, there's still a, there's a lot of players around the place, as well as, you know, 30 others that we haven't even mentioned here, who are going to fill the void. There's going to be enough good golf being played, really competitive golf being played to keep us interested I think I agree and I would like to think just changing tack here slightly Andy that Jason Day can be one of them um, yeah for the f- only the second time in about two years he's taken a little small step back up the rankings this week with a um, clearly his best performance since uh, the lockdown broke the season into two pieces but maybe for much longer than that and I think it's on the back of him uh, probably being comfortable at, at uh, Muirfield Village, of course, not too far from home. And also, of course, he's played several times, not only on tour, but in uh, team events as well. But he's actually started to make some birdies the last two weeks. Now, he hadn't mm-hmm. been doing that for quite a while. Now, you know, he's not making anywhere near enough to compete with Morikawa, etc. at the moment. But that was a big turnaround for me this week. In finishing uh, seventh, He's actually made a truckload of birdies this week. Um, and if you're not making birdies on this tour in this, the way these courses are set up, you're going backwards at a rate of knots. Uh, real positive for him, no question. We A couple of weeks ago, we were wondering you know, wh- where he was at. And he's not back-back, but that's, a, that's, a, um, that's heading in the right direction. No question about that. Matty Jones continues to go well. He's had a... He's, had a, he's just... He's just you're posting good numbers and, and recording good finishes. And uh, he's doing, without winning, he's doing a lot of things right at the moment, Matty Jones. I'd like to think, Andy, that if he, um, he, he may or may not, and I hope he proves me wrong, have the game to win a major championship. But I'd like to think at that next level down, his game's getting to the point where he's starting to knock on the door a bit more regularly. And we've seen for the last three, four years... Um, when he's told us that his putting's been just, you know, two millimetres off here and there. 
um, that he's battled to keep his card. Well, this result um, where he finished, uh, where are we here now? He's already locked up his card for next year. So he's again now playing with house money, which is a, mm. a luxury for him with so many tournaments to come. Here, here. So um, Davis Leishman, Baddeley missed the cut. Um, Cam Percy withdraws with a bunch of other players. I'm not sure. Did, I actually haven't found out what the reason for purse withdrawing was and I'm looking at you now shaking your head I'm not sure any of us are any of the wiser at this stage no I might just go and try and check that out while we're talking but um, well I'll give you one um, not a, yeah, go on. well while, you, while you're yeah. looking it up I'll give you one more stat so just to finish the Tiger Morikawa comparison and this is just one of those ones that again puts the the career of Woods into um, some perspective can, compared to others so so two wins and one uh, missed cut on the PGA Tour. Uh, he's in Tiger Woods territory now. He was the only other one to do that. It Before Tiger missed his next cut on the PGA Tour, I know whether you're with me, Hazy, because I know you, I can see you deep, deeply chasing uh, the, the Cam Percy story. But before Tiger Woods missed his second cut on the PGA Tour, do you know how many tournaments he'd won? No idea. 43. <laughs> He'd won 43 tournaments before he missed his second cut on the tour. Uh, <laughs> I don't know what That's to ridiculous. say. Morikawa That's might be ridiculous. Morikawa might be good, but you want to be bloody good to rival that step. <laughs> not doing that. Uh, so if you, I don't know whether you've been able to track anything down in no. the 13 or 14 seconds I'll put you in. No, we'll find out. Um, the Austrian Open. Mark, now here's another fascinating story this bloke. Mark Warren, at one stage, a lot of people reckon Mark Warren's got one of the best swings in world golf. And to watch him play, he's, he's again, no swing guru, but he's a very nice swing. There's a lot of good swings out there compared to mine. But he's a, he looks a very good player. At the end of last year, this bloke was not that long ago. At one stage, he was inside the top, world top 50 world rankings. At the end of last year, he was 1,107th in the world, Mark Warren. He played 19 times in 2019 and missed 12 cuts. He went through a stretch last year through 12 events where he either uh, missed the cut or was disqualified in 11 of 12 events, which, which tells you the bloke's game, his mind, everything that you need is in terrible shape. It, it can, From a professional's perspective, can hardly be in worse nick based on what the numbers of 2019 show us. Well, for him to come out and win, um, wins by one, birdies 15 and 17 to just get his nose in front of those who would be, uh, that, that is terrific. I don't know Mark Warren. I don't know whether he's a good bloke or not. Um, but if there's a lot of people barracking for Mark Warren, and a lot of people do barrack for Scottish players around the world, um, that's a terrific bounce back. To see him endure what he's endured in 2019 and then off a limited campaign so far in 2020, get his first win since 2014 on the board. That's a very good result and, and worth noting, I reckon. Yeah, and I agree. And there were two things about him that struck me. And one I'm sure you can talk about in a second is the lack of a caddy. But the second <laughs> was how he used his um, time away from the game enforced here by COVID-19 to just totally reset his mind. So I think we might actually see that a bit more often. 
people who uh, in the next couple of months, we might see this story occur more than once, that went away, thought golf was dead to them. He hasn't saluted, as you say, for six years, and he had a total mindset. It's not that, oh, I need to take two or three weeks away and work out a kink in my swing. He said he went away and delved to the back end of his mind where where he tried to find where he was as a junior, as an amateur, and all these things coming up, and he eventually found something just to hang on to. So I don't want to, there's not too many positives around the world at the moment, Andy, but he's obviously a really well-liked guy on tour. Um, for him to be able to do that, I think, is testament to his mental game as well. Here, here. Uh, Dane Lawson, the only Australian, I think, to tee it up. I don't think there was another Aussie in the field. Um, Correct. Uh, at the Austin Open. So T31, he, to, he was probably facing um, weekend oblivion after a less than satisfactory opening round. And 67 in the second round to get into the weekend was a really good result for him to produce a round when he had to, to get in. I, I think he should take a bit out of that. Agreed. Um, from my club, Kerr Lewis, the mighty Kerr Lewis, yep. Dean was... Um, struggling a bit towards the end of last year with his results, and he's he wasn't sure. It was a great story on the PGA of Australia website last week by Tony Wiebeck saying that Dean didn't... He was playing, he wasn't playing. He was playing, he wasn't playing. And it was a last-minute thing to get on the plane, fly to Austria. Um, I didn't know if he needed any special dispensation to be able to do no. that even, but he got himself there. And I think, that particularly, as you say, the 67 in the second round... Um, is going to be a huge boon for him going forward. I, I, he's he's got the capacity. I've seen it firsthand. It's taken money out of my wallet uh, to go extremely low. So you know he needs like Warren to have one good week to see him kick clear again. I reckon so that'll be good. Here, here, Corn Ferry. Uh, the young fellows were flying the flag. Brett Coletta stuck his nose in the frame again. Just couldn't quite get it done through four rounds, but another really good result uh, to all. I'm sure he's probably a bit disappointed, to be honest. T23, he was right in the mix there for a while. 65 himself in the second round to really catapult himself into contention. But he, it feels like Coletta's getting his feet on the ground. He feels like he's starting to get his head right into where he's at and he belongs and he's good enough. And I wouldn't be surprised if we see something pretty special from him in the coming weeks or months. Uh he finished tied 23, Curtis Luck 27, Harry Endicott 31, Ruffles 46, a few Aussies missed. Um, just want to admit, before you talk about um, Coletta, can I just mention Steve Bowditch? He played in this tournament, that's probably in his, I think he is a San Antonio resident, so I think he's from certainly, I think he lives in Texas. So I stand to be corrected on that, yeah. So look, I don't know how much golf um, Stephen's going to be playing these days and where it sits in his life, whether he's just a kind of part-time pro these days. I don't know. I don't know what his aspirations are. Shot 81 in the first round, and all of the, you know, oh, here I go again, must have been coming back. He's hardly made a cut for three years. He shoots 70 in the second round. Now, if Stephen Bowditch does anything, or Bowditch, is it Bowditch or Bowditch? Stephen Bowditch. If he does anything, Bowditch. if he does anything in 2020 that is significant, I wonder whether that little round of 70, he still missed the cut, but I wonder whether he looks back at that and he goes, I actually played all right that day. I, I can still go. I can still go all right. I wonder whether that might mean uh, something. Bowdo has promised me, Andy, that he will come on this podcast um, when he when he's 
feels not that we're going to give him grief, but when he doesn't oh, feel God. like he's the laughing stock of world golf. Now this is mm. basically he, he doesn't he doesn't mind coming on and copying a bit of a, a razzing, but he doesn't want to come on here having shot 93, 92, 88, 86, um, and I totally get that. So he, one of these episodes, Bado is going to be our man, and it will be the most enlivening, spiritually uplifting chat. You'll hear someone talk about. All the rubbish that he's been through, and I guarantee you he hasn't finished his um, good golf yet because he's been working hard to overcome injuries to get back to this place. I just want to read to you his card, Andy, from the other day. Mm. So he, he actually started on the back nine on the first round, and he went par, par, bogey, 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 double bogey on the 18th. Then he's gone birdie, bogey. Um, birdie bogey I'm missing a few pars here and birdie and close with a double bogey so the birdie power is still there but he's making just these errors that bad amateurs make not seasoned pros but he's you know that he can overcome that and fire back and hit a 70 I think says more than anything about Steve Bowditch um, yep. I, I really have got a lot of time for him he's overcome so much stuff Obviously, we all know his mental travails, but physically in the last two years, he's been just brutalized. And I can't wait to talk to him. I will text him again soon. He's a great bloke. Um, Good. Great story if he can if he can tell us. Um, so did you, you look like you wanted to... I rattled through a bit of stuff then. Was there something about Coletta, Luck, Endicotta, Ruffles that you wanted to make a note of? Yeah, there is two things. One is if you Brett Coletta was a, was a stock, everyone's saying bye. You know, yep. he, he is... He's coming. He just is coming. There's no doubt about that. He's going to find four rounds together real soon and be in the mix. They're only being beaten, these guys, by seasoned touring successful pros the last few weeks. Chris Kirk, we saw David Lipsky's a multiple winner on the European tour that he won this week. Um, there's a lot of stuff going on there that's positive. Two things to me, Andy. One is Colin Morikawa has had this dream chance, and yep, sure, he's taken advantage of it on the big tour. Um, we need to find a way to get these guys just one hint of a chance up on the big tour because their golf is good enough. The scores that you mm. rattled off there for those four guys, all coming up at the same age together, I think is really phenomenal. Um, there's rounds of 60s, low 60s, mid 60s coming more frequently from Ruffles, Endicott, Luck and Coletta in particular than that has been for quite a while. They just need a break. They just need a break. And I reckon that obviously that will lead to one victory, um, but it will also spur the other guys on because they travel well together. They're all good mates. Uh, and I really sense that there's something building there on the Corn Ferry Tour if we can just stick with it. Good. I hope your gut feel is right. Uh, Bob Two is about to join us. Anything else you want to mention before we get to the break? Oh, I've got something interesting to tell you later, Andy, about Bushnell, but uh, maybe we just talk oh, about yeah. that a bit later on. Right, I will hold that. That is, I think I know what you're talking about. And this could be one of the most radical changes the game of golf will ever see <laughs> uh, uh, in the storied history of the great game. Uh, it is Inside the Ropes. Don't go anywhere. Bob Tui, uh, one of the great figures of Australian golf, to join us next. You're listening to Inside the Ropes, Australia's must-listen-to golf show with exclusive content from both home and abroad. Subscribe through your favourite podcast app or listen at golf.org.au. Welcome back to the show. We are very fortunate on Inside the Ropes to have um, had access to so many people in the game of golf, not only here in Australia but around the world. Well, this bloke, his contribution, Hazy, has been absolutely international. 
It's been running for over 50 years, probably even longer than that. I'm sure Bob will tell us exactly how long he's had a connection to the great game of golf in his incredibly interesting life. Of course, I talk about Bob Tui, former pro, life member of the Glenelg Golf Club, one of the great tournament promoters, a great promoter of young Australian talent in particular in the game of golf, has been good enough to join us here on the show. Bob, thanks for joining us on Inside the Ropes. It's a pleasure. I'm a great fan of your show. Can you remember, if, if, if we asked you the first memory you have of a connection between you and the game of golf, can, can you remember the first moment it entered your life? I certainly can. Uh, I was fortunate my mum and dad uh, owned a house um, probably a, a, wee, a wee nine-nine from the second green at the Donnell Golf Club in Adelaide. So um, I was fortunate enough to be very close to the game at a very young age, like 11, 12. I used to caddy at Glenelg and... Um, and had quite a, an interest in the game. And um, uh, my mum and dad um, were fine enough, good enough to um, arrange a junior membership for me when I was around 12 years old. So that's where it all began. And when you started hitting it for okay. the first time, Bob, can you remember making, you know, solid connection? Was it a game that came, you know, kind of reasonably naturally to you? Oh, with well, such a young body, it, everything's so easy compared with today, mate. I can tell you. <laughs> <laughs> But no, yeah, no I, we... I was very. I got hooked on golf. And I was very lucky. There was um, uh, Dunlop or Schlesinger's in those days. Now Dunlop Schlesinger, now just Dunlop, arranged an exhibition match with the great Norman von Nader, a legendary Bobby Locke, and um, an amateur by the name of Doctor Ackland Horman at my golf club. And I was asked to caddy, and I ended up caddying for Bobby Locke at the age of twelve years old or thirteen years old. And um, that was a fantastic experience, and that, that really sold me. I just wanted to be one of those guys, and um, that just lit my fire. And I just wanted to be a golf pro. That's unbelievable, Bobby. That's Locke, I mean, one of the genuine legends of the game. That's that's as good an introduction as you can get. I see uh, in doing a modicum of research here, Bob, that you picked up the Glenelg C Grade Championship in at age thirteen in nineteen fifty four, but it snowballed Something pretty like quickly that, from then for you. Yeah, I, I carried on and did all the normal things. I, I was fun, sports enough to win the club championship and played pennants um, for Glenelg and um, <laughs> made the state uh, senior team at a pretty young age, which was an interesting experience as well because my first trip away to Sydney wasn't allowed in the members' bar because I, I was under underage. <laughs> anyway, that was all good fun. And uh, a couple of state championships and... Uh, that was pretty much, it all went like a flash those six or seven years as an amateur. So you, you turned pro pretty young, didn't you? Like 18 or 19 when you decided to take the plunge? Yeah, I was uh, 18, uh, 18 years old. Uh, I turned pro uh, by by mistake, really. <laughs> so I was playing in the Wills tournament uh, by invitation um, in Sydney, and I, I, I was leading amateur, I think, that week, and Peter Thompson won the tournament. And in his acceptance speech, announced that Bob Tui from Adelaide was turning pro. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I went in the locker room as a guy running around with a phone at the end, at the end of a cord. And it was my father ringing from Adelaide. What have, what have you done, son? <laughs> uh, anyway, that's how I turned professional. And uh, if I want to carry on while it's all new in my memory, um, at that time, there was no way in the world you could turn professional without being... Um, going through the process of being an assistant professional in a professional shop. And uh, my good friend Bob Charles across the Tasman did the same thing a, a couple of months later. And 
the two of us spent nearly 14 months in really in isolation with no status except we were just branded prohibition uh, provisional, provisional members of the PGA and could not compete for prize money. There was no, there's no way we could get into the PGA without spending some time outside the ropes, to speak. So that was an interesting period, and um, so we decided um, in late '60 uh, to jump on the plane and we flew to South Africa, where we could play play for prize money, and uh, travel together for a couple of years on tour, and um, finally got our status after a, a few rule changes by the PGA of Australia. It was an interesting time. That's that's unbelievable, Bob. Um, Clates has told us about this before, and Bruce Devlin let us know uh, how yep. he had to basically forego all his winnings when he was a young whippersnapper who was good enough to compete and take home checks off the PGA Tour of Australia, but he just rules prevented him from doing it. And I think it might have gone up to Roger Davis's time even. He's talked to us about that before. Yeah, it was uh, Bruce Devlin and also Teddy Ball. I think they had... Uh... Bruce won the, I think, the Australian Open at Karen Up and Teddy Ball was runner up and they both turned pro soon after and they fell into the same sort of uh, no man's land with no uh, with no status because there was no um, structure within the PGA of Australia for playing professionals. You had to be a club pro. And um, anyway, um, a lot of wise men got together, changed the rules and uh, everybody then was able to be... Uh, Play for prize money, and we all went in their separate directions. But it was an interesting period. We're talking to Bob Tui on Inside the Ropes. But Bob, can you remember your first check? Can you remember the first time you you got some 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 money for you know finishing somewhere in a tournament? You actually got some cash. Uh, I can't remember exactly where, but um, during that prohibition period, I won two tournaments, uh, two professional <laughs> events, and got no money. <laughs> I cannot remember my first check where that was. I really can't. I'm sorry. So 13 wins in eight different countries, 29 times you were runner-up. So, I mean, the, the numbers look fantastic from a, from a um, professional um, career's perspective. They could, have been, they could have been significantly better. Is there one of those... Um, one of those events, whether it be the one that you won or ended up sort of runner-up in, is there one of those major events in, in your career that you played in that, that stands out for you? Um, good question. So yes and no. Um, I never won anything significant as such, you know, no major events or anything like that. Though, uh, in, in NZPJ, Fiji Opens and State Opens and uh, Scots, I won in Scotland and, um, and also in um, Japan and lesser event. But I think um, the so biggest Jay? impact was no, no, was uh, the South African Open in Cape Town. Uh, it was a very memorable week of my life. Where coming down the straight and um, got beaten a shot by Gary, and uh, that was a very memorable week and made a, a big difference to my life. So you're so you you, you were beaten by player, um, you know, at at the. I'm not sure what year that would have been, but I imagine he would have been getting close to the peak of his powers. Your runner-up to Thompson at Yarra in the 73 Vic Open, I think I'm right in saying, Bob. Um, does anybody hold a candle to Peter? Of all those that you played against or, or maybe saw, um, is Thompson head and shoulders above all of them? As a player or, or as a person? As Well, as a player. Uh, Peter Thompson would have been in the top one or two, but the best the best player and striker I've ever seen was Ben Hogan. 
Um, that was something special. But uh, as a striker of the golf ball, but Peter Thompson was certainly one of the best players, you know, technicians, I'll, I'll put it to you, and most reliable players I've ever seen, besides being a very, very good friend and supporter of myself. Uh, he had a great deal to do with my, my early life. In fact, my entire life. Um, I'm very grateful to Peter and to a certain extent Mary for the support I got over many, many years. I might ask you more about Peter in a second, but I'm intrigued by Ben Hogan. Did you actually get to play with him oh, in yeah. person? No, I was on a business trip to the United States, staying with my good friend uh, um, David Graham in Dallas. And um, David was very close to Hogan and because um, he was a, a club maker nut and used to spend a lot of time in the factory, you know, making, you know, forging clubs with Ben and all that stuff. And I was staying with David, and he asked me to go down to Fort Worth to Shady Oaks Country Club, where Ben used to practice and play, uh, to attend one of his um, his corporate outings. So I went down with David one morning. We sat on the little bench in the range, and there was sitting was Raymond Floyd, Gene Littler, and another guy I can't remember, uh, David and myself, and the great man arrived, and hit a few golf balls, and um, I'll never forget um, watching that guy get the club on the ball. It was just absolutely incredible. I'm interested in um, Ben Hogan as he's hazy, Bob. There's a couple of old devotees in the golf game have found some old archival vision of Ben, and they've re-digitised it. And for somebody like me who's not a, a swing guru, just to sit there and look at his swing is, is mesmerising. Was it a thing of beauty for you to just kind of sit there and, and watch him swing the club? Yeah, it was also considering his accident and the skill he had. Um, he was very athletic and quiet, very thin and um, very wiry, strong. But just the sound of the um, the connection always impressed me. You know, it was just a lovely. It was a very modern sound off the club. You know, it's just a great experience. So, Bob, going back to Peter Thompson, I mean, we learned a lot more about him, unfortunately, as we tend to do with a lot of people when he passed away, um, about mm. the impact that he had in globalizing the game and, and enhancing things in Asia. And you obviously were quite uh, prolific yourself in Japan, um, as as was as was Peter. Did he sort of drive you into you know, taking not only your game, but also your thoughts about the game more globally? Did he impact you in that way? No, not really. Um, no, Peter was, um, well, after he announced I was a professional, he took me under his wing and I spent several weeks in, in Melbourne with him uh, shortly after with his good friend and and um, uh, a guy called Harry, Harry Young at the Victoria Golf Club. And I spent great time with with them and practicing and it was more about learning the trade I guess more than anything else but when we set out on tour it, it, we, you know, we were very separated because he, he lived in a different plant to me school wise and um, we didn't see a lot of each other except at the odd tournaments we'd pass in the locker room or on the golf course or got paired together but um, only later in my life and his life where he became president PGA of Australia or chairman and uh, started to take an interest in, in, in things. Um, I sort of um, got a little bit closer to him, the way he was thinking about the development of golf and the expansion of it. And he did have a lot of influence in Asia and Japan, and for that matter, on, on the global stage. And he did a, a heck of a job um, on tour to improve life on tour, I suppose, if you want to put it that way, you know, for the, 
for the, the mm. good of the game. He did a great job. So, Bob, in, in doing uh, the research on, on your impact in the game here, which is vast, there's a bit of a gap between being a, you know, a legitimately world-class player, as you obviously were, and then for people of Andy and my era to see you as a, a tournament promoter and all the things that came with that, in uh, digging, we found a back injury in 1973 um, somewhere in Japan. I'm not sure if that's uh, you know actual fact or whether that's a bit of um, you know hearsay about what might have gone on. But that was that the spark that took you away from playing in a in a global sense. Yes, so that was. Um, I was enjoying a very good year in Japan that year, and um, it was. Um, I think it was, uh, um, where was it, da, 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 da. Okinawa, uh, the Fuji Sankey tournament. Uh, I, I, was, I, I really had a bad experience in my lower back, you know, lower lumbar region was very bad. So I, I actually came home and, um, and uh, to get fixed and spent some time with Douglas Nunn, a physio guy down at Donilg, and took some time out. And uh, it took many months to recover from that. And during that time, I, I didn't play too much at all and, and couldn't. And uh, that sort of got me thinking about the future a bit. And finally, out of nowhere, yeah. I finally uh, was introduced, uh, in fact, in the early 74 to a guy called Brian Martin, who was the CEO of Westlakes Limited in Adelaide, a, develop, a yeah. big development. And um, he, was a, he was a mad golfer at the Grange Golf Club and asked me for a game, which I went played with Brian and we finished, had a drink, as you always did in those days, and he and asked me if I could run a golf tournament called the Westlake Classic at the Grange Golf Club for him. And I said, sure, I know everything about golf. So in 75, um, off we go, we have the Westlake Classic was born, and that's how I, I got into golf, in the promotion of, of golf. <laughs> so, Bob, before before we dive into that, because it's fascinating, and um, we've got some insights and some observations and some stories to tell that we're very keen to get. I just want to ask you about one more person you played again before we close the book on that part of your life. As a guy, as I, yeah. I was looking at your tournament results, this name Walter Godfrey kept bobbing up, and I, I'm too young to remember Walter Godfrey as a player, but he sounds like he was a hell of a player, New Zealander of Maori background. Um, yeah. You beat him in the New Zealand PGA in '63 in a match play, and then he, ten years later, in the, at the Vic Open. I think it might have been a Commonwealth, 72. He won by seven shots and beat Kel Nagel and Oseo Aoki, uh, amongst mm. others, uh, into second place. He's, he's won it by a street. Can you tell me a bit about Walter Godfrey? Yeah, well, he was a very, very interesting character. Um, not a tall man, very strong, hit the ball low and flat. Um, a bit of a character, always had a deal going. <laughs> uh but uh, an absolute character and a terrific guy, and a, he was a very good friend on tour. He's a good guy to have around the tour. He was never down, always up and about, and um, and it was a very positive young man. And um, I, they call him the Gollywog. <laughs> he was a good guy. I don't reckon they'd be. And a very, I don't reckon. That, but probably wouldn't be doing that these days, I don't think. But um, but geez, it's, he sounded like he had he had. He sounded like he had a fascinating story to tell. Is he still with us, Bob? Do you know whether he's whether Walt whether Walter's still with us? Yeah, he's online. You can find he's he's got a he's got a website and he's living in Sydney and he's very much about yes. 
So, Hazy's opened yeah. the door into um, your life sort of post-playing, and, and it becomes a fascinating one. You've mentioned the Westlake's classics, classic, and, and, and anyone my age will remember the year of 1976 and that event and, and the, the sort of leaping off point it was for Greg Norman. Did you know much about Norman in coming into that event? Was he already on your radar? Um, yes and no. I've seen Greg play at uh, Indrapilly Golf Club, not Indrapilly, at the World, World Queensland Golf Club in the presence of um, um, the professional, what was his name, uh, Wyatt Earp, Charlie Earp. Charlie Earp. Uh, Charlie, yeah. <laughs> we used to call him Wyatt. Uh, he was a good mate and was, you know, used to play our mini tours in Australia. And, and I actually was at uh, Q one day and, and actually watched Greg play and very, very impressive. And he was a, an assistant professional to um, to Charlie at, at Royal Queensland Golf Club. And um, that's where I first met Greg. And uh, I decided um, when the tournament was um, announced, I actually invited Greg to play and I provided an air ticket and he's helped accommodation at the old Taff Motel Glenelg and he rocked up in 76 and won the tournament there you go that's fantastic <laughs> did you in and, your uh, wildest the, dream at the end of the day Sorry. We, we've, remained, we've remained friends all these years and uh, Greg's played in Adelaide and he played every 10 years 76, 86, 96 and 206 he played in, in, in the Adelaide in all those years to support my tournaments, yeah. Bob, in your wildest dreams, could you have imagined the career that was going to f- sort of follow or, or, or become Greg Norman's from, from that point f- that you first sort of saw him and, and what he did at Westlakes, what he did at the Grange that year? Look, I had no doubt from a golfing perspective the guy was going to go somewhere. I, I didn't, I couldn't ever, you know, suggest at that time he's going to be number one in the world and one of the best players on the planet, but the charisma of that guy. I mean, Greg Norman arrived in Australian golf at exactly the right time with the right credentials. Blonde, tall, strong, hit a long way, played like hell and had a great image, good attitude. He was very, very good for golf. He was, he, he, he sort of, he was the cornerstone of our tour for many, many years. And then, of course, along Curry Webb came along 10 years later or so and um, she played her part. So I was very fortunate uh, during you know those peak years, to have a Norman and a Webb, you know that um, did their thing for Australian golf. Well, before we push on Bob to the to Curry's era and the tournaments you hosted, I just wondered yeah. if you could still possibly manage in your mind to um, you know perhaps send Greg an invite to stay at the Glenelg Caravan Park, whether he'd still rock <laughs> down and uh, peg it up for you. No, he was. <laughs> No, it was quite a nice motel, actually. <laughs> Interesting <laughs> so, stuff. Um, one of the, if yeah, you want to stay in Norman, one of the funny stories about Greg Norman was, I think it was 86, the, the, the uh, second Formula One Grand Prix in Adelaide, which our company was um, in charge of the marketing and production of that event on the ground for five years in Adelaide with my former partner, Brian Allen, and um, Greg was mad on um, motorsport, and um, he wanted to meet Nigel Mansell, which we arranged for him to do when Nigel was here. Of course, Nigel being a golf nut, they played the Pro-Am together at Kionga Golf Club. But on the previous day, Nigel drove um, Greg out to um, the motor park, I forget the name of the place out of Adelaide, where he had to go and get a test so he could drive in a celebrity race. 
<laughs> so out they go to Malalara somewhere on the northern part of Adelaide to get his, his ticket uh, so he could tee up in the celebrity race um, on the Wednesday afternoon at the Formula One track, which he didn't qualify. But on the way back, Mansell's driving. He's doing about 120 on the way back. And, he, you know, the police pull over driver and the policeman apparently... Um, pulled them over, Nigel's put the window down, they said, can I have a driver's license, what's your name, sir? My name's Nigel Mansell, and the copper said to him, I suppose your mate's Greg Norman, is he? He said, that's right, sir. <laughs> and, they had a, and they had a police escort back to the Hilton Hotel and had a great day. <laughs> that's fantastic. <laughs> that's great. <laughs> oh, dear. So, that was so Bob... That was Bob the, The, the uh, Westlake's Classic was, I guess, one of the early ones of what became TA yep. Golf, Tui Associates, and it's it's a you know a marketing agency, whatever you want to describe it as in the golf industry. That's been, I would say, unparalleled in terms of its promotion of Australian and, for that matter, New Zealand golf. I mean, you have had your fingerprints uh, on that many of the big tournaments that we talk about all the time on this podcast. You know, from the National Opens of New Zealand and the Players' Championship and Tour Championships and Jacobs Creek's Open and primarily, in my mind, anyhow, the ANZ Ladies' Masters was just an enormous undertaking that put Australian golf, Curry Webb, so many things on the map. Yes, it's, it's been a journey. It's, 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 it's uh, interesting times, though, but um, things change. So and, they do uh, change, say, Bob. Would- Sorry, would you would you take it on now? Would you, would you would you be enthusiastic about the prospect of being charged with the the job you had back in the seventies, eighties, and nineties? Would you would you be as enthusiastic about that job now? Well, it wasn't a job um, really. It um, it was um, a love affair with the game. It was a, a transition from from amateur golf to playing golf inside the ropes and doing my trick outside the ropes, I guess. And it happened uh, not by design, but by opportunity at the time, as I explained, that this has popped along. And at the time, you know, the early 70s, through really until probably the mid-2000s, golf was pretty much um, flavour of the month in the average boardroom. And since that time... um, the balance has changed. There's so many sports and other options. The media has changed. Uh, television, you can watch golf every day of the week on TV, the best place in the world. In those days, you couldn't. Um, and pr- uh, sponsorship of golf has diminished greatly. Uh, there are no more independent promoters of golf anymore as such. That, that, that world has changed. And um, obviously, it's very, very difficult in the current climate to actually have even our own established players, uh, so-called star players, actually return to their home country annually support their own tour because of scheduling, not because of not desire or money, but because of the world schedule. It's, you know, if you're going to play for 10 to $12 million, I guess, you know, $1.5 million, I know where I'd be as a golf professional. So, so Bob, do you feel any do you feel any animosity towards the big tours for not protecting or not not providing space for for you know for secondary tours like ours to to have their time in the sun? No, not at all. I mean, you know, the, you know, everything's about competition. You know, 
everybody has to do what they think is best for their own, their own backyard as such. And I think the US PGA Tour and the European Tour have done, you know, wonderful, wonderful job promoting golf. And so is the JPGA. And um, everybody has to do their thing. I've, I've got no grudge or no ill feeling about the development of golf on a global basis. But, you know, Australia, with a small population and, and limited amount of um, you know, money to um, secure such events, we have to play a place and, and fit into the model, the world model, or we're not going to survive at all. And there is a place for a, a national open, a national PGA, the Vic Open model, which is great. Uh, and four or five, maybe six tournaments is going to be a maximum going forward in my in my uh, estimation. The best we can do, and, and play a part where we can. But the old days are gone. Um, yeah, that's sadly true. Unfortunately, um, you we are only scratching the surface of things that you're known for. Um, I want to put it to you that not only did you organise a brilliant. Australian Ladies Masters, but you had a really happy knack, particularly in women's golf, of sort of finding prodigies. Um, so you got people like Lexi Thompson and Brooke Henderson and Yanni Singh and Lorena Ochoa and Lydia Ko, all to come to the Gold Coast and play before they were massive names on a global stage. What is it that you saw and, and what's your feeling towards the future of women's golf? Has it got a big, big, bright future ahead? Hmm, that's a good question. Um, well, I, I travelled extensively uh, to um, during my time in the Belize Masters and um, went to a lot of the LPGA events and um, watched people play, contacted management people, and um, and uh, I was selective and had a good eye, I think, for talent at the time uh, and um, became very friendly with many of the players and and had a nice, um, nice rapport, if I can put it to you that way. And there was a nice feeling of trust and, and you know, deli- of delivery. And uh, you make the offer, they arrive and they do their job, and they are all very grateful of the opportunity. So it was like a, a big family, the ladies' masters. It's a family, a good, nice feeling. Bob, it sounds like job. the way. You- it sounds like the way you did business, you know, I hate using that term, but the way, the way you cultivated those relationships, it sounds like it was about more than money. And yet these days it feels like the only way you're going to get big names down to Australia, particularly on the men's side of the game, is to lay millions of dollars in front of them. Is that, a, is that an accurate read from my perspective? Yeah, well, I think it's a pretty accurate one. But if, uh, if um, I could ask... Well, yes and no. Well, some some players commanded um, a certain amount of money, air and accommodation by way of managers. Okay, others we dealt directly with. Only you ring Laura Davis. Good day, you know Laura. How you doing? Um, yeah, I want to come down. Send me a ticket. I'm on the plane, and that was the deal. No, no contract, nothing. Pretty much the same with with many players. And others you had to deal through managers and and whatever, whatever. But that didn't change, you know. The relationships personally, but there was always a firewall between certain players, like the men's, uh, the men's, the men's tour, particularly in re- you know recent years. But relationships were everything, and that that was really the foundation of um, how we got 
um, got uh, the Australian Women's Open. We brought back out of nowhere uh, in '94, and also built the Masters on what was was really uh, a matter of trust between the, the client or the player and our organisation. I can see Hazy. Hazy's been. Um, Hazy's been. Uh, uh, what's the right word? He's been frustrated by managers in the past, um, Bob, uh, to the to the point of despair. Did you? Did you? Uh, you sound like a very yeah. measured, um, very very measured, mellow individual to me. But were there times when the temper frayed a little bit when managers got involved and prevented happening what you thought was possible? No, I avoided any clash uh, with managers. Um, in fact, in the contrary, I enjoyed a, a very, very um, sound and productive relationship with our friends at IMG. In fact, I'm still um, still very, very um, close to, um, for example, Mark Steinberg, who's uh, Tiger, Tiger Woods' personal manager, w- was a great friend and ally of mine and used to manage you know, many of the players. And um, Mark and I are still good friends. In fact, caught up at the President's Cup and had a great chat. And um, there's guys in England I know, of course, and Japan, from other management companies. Um, I've never had any uh, really um, drama with any any particular manager or management company. The only argument we've ever had is really the sum of money required for a certain person. And the net equation is, you know, I accept, I'm sorry, I can't do it. End of story. Mm. In fact, I also had a lot of... There's no doubt about that. Well, James Erskine and I used to have a few few spills. You remember James? Yep. He was great. Mm. Uh, James Erskine, he's still in Sydney. And um, we used to have a few arguments, I guess, now and again. But at the end of the day, um, we we never had a contract. Even even when Greg was playing at his greatest, we'd just shake hands on the phone. The deal was done and he would honour everything. I've got nothing but respect for James or his company for that matter. Bob, I just wanted to ask you, I mean, as I said, we're barely scratching things here, but uh, golf course design, you're not, you're not content with all the things we've already spoken about <laughs> yourself. Um, uh, in, you know, you've done great things on a solo level, but with Neil Crafter, uh, it sort of came full circle almost back to Glenelg, didn't it? It's, it's, uh, it's an amazing thing right. that you've done at your own home club of 50 years earlier. Yeah, I, would, I really enjoy that. I've always had a, an eye for golf courses and obviously uh, Neil and I get on very well and his father was a great friend of mine. Brian used to commentate with ABC, you might remember uh, that one, Mark. He was, they're a lovely family. Murray Craft, of course, used to be the club professional at Glenelg Golf Club. And when I was asked to um, have a look at the redesign of the golf course, um, um, my skills uh, only from the eye and from the heart and I needed uh, somebody to uh, arrange the shaping and, and um, you know, get down to the drawing board. And, and Neil was the obvious choice. So I asked Neil and Neil and I together um, put the plan together and we're still working on the golf course as we speak today. A lot of fun. So, Bob, last one from me. Um, we, we, on this program, spend a lot of time trying to, trying to get a grasp on where Australia, particularly from the men's tour perspective, where it sits in the, yeah. in the grand scheme of things now. Um, and we're, we're trying to come up with ways to keep it relevant and, and flourishing in this neck of the woods. Do, do you think that there's still a place for a vibrant men's tour in Australia? 
That's a huge, huge question. I've given some thought to that. Um, the answer is pretty much yes and no. Um, currently, nobody can make any decisions about anything, obviously, because of the uh, situation we're all in. But um, on the positive side, you know, whatever happens, we've got to probably uh, adapt to sort of a, a back to the future approach and make and absolutely ensure 100% that our National Open Championship, male and female, and the PGA Championship um, continue to uh, to grow in statue at all costs. I mean, the, those 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 three major events are, are very key. You know, I think to um, to the future of golf in Australia. And if we can sustain or retain um, the Vic Opens and the New South Wales Opens and whatever, uh, I think that's our place for the immediate future. And I can't see the tour building much beyond our three major events, plus our Vic Open and um, a number of other state opens at this at this time, uh, given the commercial world and uh, where golf sits, where Australian golf sits you know, on on the international um, calendar that's my view so in, in short our national opens male female and pga champion paramount to our future so, so i do have one more and this is always the case with it without that without the shop window if so to speak in australia of, of our national events being the pinnacle and having a profile do you ever worry that um the development of uh, and, and the attraction of the game to young athletes, young sports people coming through will be diminished? No, I think um, Golf Australia and the PGA and all of their their, um, their programs they've got to go golf and all these things. I mean, I've, I'm just really so impressed to see so many kids on the golf course at the moment. Male, female, with pros teaching, all the gimmicks they've got going these days with their clinics and God knows what, junior pennants and there's a lot of kids out there playing golf far more than I've ever seen ever before these last couple of years, and they're doing it a great deal, a great, a great job at grassroots travel um, levels, all over male, female, state by state, which is very, very healthy. And I love those young people that do uh, achieve, you know, high honours in the in the amateur world. Um, eventually, they they will turn professional. They'll go to a tour school somewhere in the world, get a card, and go and make a living. So that's going to happen. And that that part of it, I believe, is the the growth in that at that level is very very healthy, better than it's been for a long long time. But the, the well, that side is completely different. Well, well, the part of it's a positive, and as you said, there's a yes and no, and a and a and a good and a bad, and, a, and all that sort of stuff. There's two sides to everything. So you've, we finished on a positive, which is a good thing to do. We could spend yeah. days talking to you about your life in golf. Um, we've only, as Hazy said, yeah. we've only just scratched the surface, but. Um, thanks for giving us a few minutes of your time today, Bob. We really appreciate it. No, it's very interesting. Appreciate the chance, and uh, good luck to you guys, and keep promoting the game, man. Eh? Good on you. Bob Tui, uh, a man who's made as uh, significant a contribution to golf in Australia as anybody else. I'd defy you to come up with two or three others whose contribution to golf in this country is greater than Bob's. Joining us on Inside the Ropes, uh, great pleasure to have uh, spent some time with him. We'll clear a break, come back with more on the other side of this. You're listening to Inside the Ropes, Australia's must-listen-to golf show with exclusive content from both home and abroad. Subscribe through your favourite podcast app or listen at golf.org.au. 
Thanks, boys, and welcome back, everybody, to Inside the Ropes. It's Ali Whitaker here, and we're going to launch into a segment about what might just be the most groundbreaking broadcast we see in a long time. I am, of course, referring to the Open for the Ages, and the woman that is here to tell us all the inside goss about it is uh, standing by a good friend of mine, Sky presenter Iona Stephen, making your debut. Welcome to uh, Inside the Ropes. Thank you very much, Alison. It's good to be here with you. Now, where do we find you at the moment? Well, actually, it's a good question. Um, I am in my house in Putney, um, but it's a very small house, and I've got some very sleepy housemates. So I'm actually not in the house at all. Um, I'm just outside <laughs> in the garden. So if you hear any tweeting birds in the background, then that's why. <laughs> Okay, so you haven't put the special <laughs> effects on for us. Awesome. You're just being a kind roommate. <laughs> yeah, well, funnily enough, for the Open for the Ages, um, I did the on-course commentary and I had to be outside for that um, for the duration of the work as well to get the correct um, acoustics. So I'm getting kind of used to this being outside. Working outside seems to be the way I like to roll. Well, it's not, it's not too bad either in the, uh, the British summer at the moment, less so a little bit in winter. Well, that's right. Although um, I recorded my piece for the Open for the Ages in Scotland and Scotland doesn't really get a summer. So it was more or less winter there um, <laughs> for the entire day that we recorded it. So I had a jacket on, the umbrella up, a woolly hat on, and that is as good as Scottish summer gets. Oh my gosh, that's so brilliant. To talk about a method actress. <laughs> yeah, no one can complain that it wasn't authentic recording because it was actually recorded on the old course in St Andrews in the rain. It, well, I, I don't think anyone could ever debate your authenticity. You know, you split your time now between uh, London and, and St Andrews where you kind of spent a large part of your life, I believe, growing up. What was it like cutting your teeth as a golfer at the home of golf? Well... It, it would have been amazing, I imagine, um, but I didn't actually start playing golf until I went to university. Um, I grew up in Edinburgh, which is about an hour south of St Andrews, um, so just across the Fourth Road Bridge for anyone who's been to that neck of the woods. And so obviously, you know, golf, Scotland is the home of golf, but for some reason it's not a sport that we're taught at school. And so it wasn't until later in my life, until I went to university, that I actually took up the game. And I quickly got myself to St Andrews University, actually. And that's when I really, you know, got into playing the game every single day, every hour that God gave. I was, I was there practicing and playing and decided that, you know, I wanted to, to try and make a career playing golf. And I was really lucky to have that time in St Andrews. And I think my family really fell in love with St Andrews when I was studying there, so much so that they live there now and they've been living there for eight years. So um, my whole family fell in love with it, as did I, and I'm very lucky to, to call it my home 50% of the time. That's, that's quite incredible that you didn't actually kind of really start playing golf until you're at university, though. It is a bit mental, and I, I did play <laughs> hockey, though, so I will, I will counter that with I played field hockey, um, which is a very popular sport in the UK for girls, and 
I guess that's a stick and a ball, just a slightly shorter stick and a slightly bigger ball. <laughs> so moving into golf was a challenge, to say the least. But I had the kind of hand-eye, you know, give this ball a whack thing kind of down by that point. So I had a distinct advantage. And I say to a lot of people, they say, oh, gosh, how did you, how did you get, you know, good so quickly? And I say, most hockey players get good very quickly. I'm not alone. I'm yet to meet a field hockey player that is not a natural golfer. Intriguing. Okay, so a definite, definite crossover there. What kind of, I'm trying to think, I'm just racking my brains now as to the golfers that have actually come out of the St Andrews region though. Are there, is there anyone playing on tour at the moment that's specifically from that, that neck of the woods? Um, that's a good question actually. There's not. I'm asking um, the locals. There's certainly, <laughs> yeah, there's, there's certainly... Um, Obviously, there's there's great golfers from Scotland, uh, male and female, playing on tour. And, uh, well, Gemma Dryber in the UK is um, a Scottish player, although she's based down south. And she's doing particularly well at the moment. And then on the men's side of things, there's, some, you know, there's a, lot of, a lot of very strong Scottish players. But in terms of from St. Andrews, it's a really good question. And I actually think the answer is no. And uh, that is, that's, that's really quite a sad answer to be honest but the answer is no um, <laughs> but Scotland's not that big a country so we can all kind of claim that we're from St Andrews if we really want to that's it that's it it's a it's a blanket region what now I'm going to quiz you a little yeah. bit about what your favorite course in that region is is that a silly question is it just obviously St Andrews old course for everyone no definitely not a silly question because there, it is just so saturated with golf courses. Um, obviously, it's the largest public links um, in the whole of Europe, the St Andrews links, and that's because there's seven golf courses that you can choose from. Um, and the old course is, a, is the most famous, of course, but you've got um, the new course, the Eden, all the way down to the Balgove, which is a brilliant little nine-hole golf course, um, which I actually have to say is one of my favourites without a shadow of a doubt. I played that at least three times a day during my time at university there, and it's, it's a perfect little golf course for, for, for practising kind of 100 yards and in, but there is, you know, there's actually a really challenging par four on there. But um, recently, during my time in St Andrews, I've just been there for four months during um, lockdown, and as things eased and golf courses opened up again I was lucky to go and play a course that is six miles outside of St Andrews so very close by um called Gumbarney Links and it's a brand new golf course in the area um it's a similar well I mean it's it's similar in and approach to King's Barnes in that it's not a member's golf course so it's it's purely for visitors but it's um, a Clive Clark design golf course that I personally think is outstanding and has brought a whole new challenge to the area. But you're spoilt for choice there all along that East Nuke of Fife um, and then into the town of St Andrews itself. Honestly, you could spend you could spend four months there playing golf every day and it still wouldn't be enough. You are, you're a walking advertisement as well, aren't you, for, for that region? I love it. But one, one of the things that I'm most jealous of about your life is actually one of the things that you're an ambassador of. And that's when you know you've made it, when you're an ambassador for a whiskey. I know what's coming. 
<laughs> tell us, tell us about your relationship with with Locke Lomond and uh, and Colin Montgomery as well a little bit as a as a result. Yeah, well, you're absolutely right. I do feel like if it all ended tomorrow, I'd say, well, I've done pretty well there, and I'm I'm pretty happy because I've had some fantastic times not only on the golf course but off the golf course, and that's in part due to partners that I work with like Loch Lomond Whiskies and that started um, last year that relationship began really at Port Rush where we were there for the Open of course and I was hosting some Q&A's in their hospitality tent during the week and we all just hit it off really and the CEO Colin Matthews is a mad keen golfer and it wasn't long before we were all playing together at King's Barn which is another fantastic course in the St Andrews area and I was lucky that day to play nine of the 18 holes with Monty, um, Colin Montgomery, obviously. And um, it just, just was <laughs> oh, a lot of fun. you just on a first name basis. You know, just Monty. He's Monty well, to you. you know, Monty. <laughs> I actually had to, um, I had to... I had to interview him in the evening. We all went for this very posh dinner in, in the RNA clubhouse. And... Um, the chief executive of the RNA, Martin Slumbers, was there, and um, I felt a bit cheeky walking in because I decided to take a bold move and wear some red tartan trousers. And I thought, are they going to let me into the RNA wearing red tartan trousers? <laughs> I thought, if you know, if ever there was a night to try it, but t- t- tonight was the night. You know, Loch Lomond whiskeys, interviewing Colin Montgomery. Um, so thankfully, Martin didn't chuck me out the RNA, and I got away with it. And I stood and had a lovely <laughs> half an hour conversation with with Monty about about his love for whiskey. And Loch Lomond are the official spirit of the Open, and so Loch Lomond whiskies are. And so well done. his link, nice plug, to, nice plug. There. <laughs> thank you. His link to the Open and his memories and his fondest memories are, of course, around the old course in St Andrews. I think. Anyone who's played an Open at St Andrews, um, let alone just played at St Andrews, to be honest, um, takes a little bit of that with them for the rest of their lives. And Monty, you could see, speaking with amazing emotion and sharing his memories, really. And I know he had a particularly good round where on the day he beat Tiger Woods. So he speaks very fondly of that particular round of golf. Um, But a lovely connection to the home of golf, Loch Lomond Whiskies, and for me, just an incredible partner, least of all because of the people, but because their whiskey's also very good. <laughs> <laughs> Which you can attest to. I've seen some of the uh, the cocktails you've been making during lockdown, but what a great segue it is into uh, the, the Open for the Ages. And I've got to tell you, I just watched the trailer <coughs> online at theopen.com. If it doesn't give you chills, you're mm. not a golfer. How how cool was it to be part of this project? And um, can you get, kind of give us the, the bones of how it's all going to work from uh, July 16 to 19 coming on this weekend? Yeah, you're absolutely right. They, they, watching the trailers give me chills as well. And it was an incredible honour to be a part of it. Um, I was very, very flattered to be invited to be part of the commentary team because it was Nick Doherty, Butch Harmon and Ewan Murray that I was alongside. So three of the game's best and um, there was little old me and my waterproofs on the old course. Um, I was doing the on-course <laughs> commentary. So 
Um, I think the reason that I was chosen for the role was probably because it was more of an acting role and I've got a habit of being quite dramatic. So um, <laughs> I think they were just looking for a drama queen, really. <laughs> uh, someone that I've never could, noticed yeah, that about you at all. <laughs> so, uh, no, it was a real honour. And as you say, you know, it's it's a great shame that we're not experiencing the 149th Open this week and we all feel the loss of these great sporting events in our calendar but it's you know an incredible opportunity to have the greatest champions in golf um competing once again you know competing in this new narrative that none of us have ever seen before around the old course which is the one when it comes to the open so how many how many players are there is it stroke play match play how's it going to work well, I, I have to be very careful what I say. So I'll tell you that <laughs> there are, um, there's, as, you, as you mentioned, from Thursday to 16, so this Thursday, you can access footage from the first three rounds online at theopen.com. And then it all um, culminates in, this, in a three-hour broadcast, which is being shown on TV as well as theopen.com, where the final pairings of which I cannot say go out on Sunday and they compete head to head and it's been expertly woven together in a way that is completely believable um, and again I'm, I'm going to be very careful not to reveal too much but the pairings that you're watching you know the likes of in the field you've got Tiger Woods, Jack Nicholas, Seve, Sir Nick Faldo, Tom Watson, McElroy, all these guys are there battling it out and you are totally convinced that they're playing in the same field on the same day in St Andrews and you, you know obviously they've used old footage archive footage to to mix in with modern day footage from well like five years ago and the way that they've managed to adjust the colors and obviously there's there's small indiscrepancies like in the grandstands and there's, there's things that have changed over time but the course fundamentally has remained very very similar to this day and that's I guess what's allowed this to be possible um, but some great matches out there and it's, it's impossible not to get totally drawn into it but even as commentators we're you know we, we're under lock and key as to who's playing and who won and it wasn't till the very end that I actually um, was let into a couple of the secrets, but I still don't know everything. And so I'm excited to watch it as well. Oh, love it. Absolutely love it. So how is um, how's the winner decided then on the Sunday? Like, is it is it done within the broadcast? I think there's there's an element of uh, fan involvement as well. Yeah, that's right. It's, uh, it's interesting. And I'm sure there'll be lots of opinions about this. And um, it'll be very interesting to see how people react to the way this plays out. But it has been decided by a mix of data. Um, one of the partners of the Open for the Ages is NTT Data, and they've used votes from over 10,000 people along... Uh, sorry, they've used um, the votes of 10,000 fans along with the data that they've collected to decide who the winner is of the Open for the Ages. Right. Intriguing. All right. Well, there's there's a number of things that I am going to be curious to uh, to watch about, namely as well, p 
potentially how you know the advances of technology are shown throughout the broadcast as well because that's you know kind of a little bit of the elephant in the room on inside the ropes it's rare we get through an episode without talking about the the distance debate as well and this is going to be incredibly enthralling i think to watch iona i'd say the drinks are on me next time but i think we both know that that's pretty obvious you'll be bringing the whiskies from now on (laughs) i think i can manage that ali don't you worry (laughs) well keep crushing it at what you do you're doing great thanks so much for coming on the show It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for having me. Well, I can't wait to watch this weekend, July 16 to 19. All the info, as we mentioned earlier, for the Open for the Ages can be found online at theopen.com. That was Iona Stephen, and you're listening to Inside the Rope. The boys will be right back after this. You're listening to Inside the Ropes, Australia's must-listen-to golf show with exclusive content from both home and abroad. Subscribe through your favourite podcast app or listen at golf.org.au. Welcome back to Inside the Ropes and another very special guest about to join us, Andrea Lamont-Mills. Not often we have a professor on here, Andy, but we have Professor Lamont-Mills from the University of Southern Queensland. Uh, who's doing some groundbreaking research. Welcome along, Andrea. Uh, thanks very much, and thank you very much for having me on your program today. It's an absolute pleasure, and it's not your study that you're undertaking, which we're about to go into here, is not so much specifically about golf, but it, it's very important for all female athletes uh, around, and not, and not only athletes, but all females around Australia to, to consider what you're undertaking here. Absolutely. Despite what we think, it's not adolescent or younger women who are most at risk of taking their own lives. So the study is looking at those women who are in menopause age range in terms of their well-being, but particularly about suicide. And it's, as I said, it's not the younger women who are most at risk of taking their own lives. It's actually the women aged 40 to 59 So we're really interested in understanding why that might be the case and particularly the role that sport might play. So that obviously fits into a large percentage of the women who play golf or occupy that age bracket. Would you like to see those who are listening to this and those around Australia more broadly get get involved directly? Absolutely. We want women who are aged 35 to 65 because that covers the pre-menopause and post-menopause age range. We need women who play sport and don't play sport to participate in our online survey um, so that we can get a better understanding of uh, perhaps how menopause and going through menopause, which is uh, you know, uh, quite a challenging period for women, how they feel about that, how um, their mental health is, and particularly for those women who are playing sport, whether the camaraderie of sport can help them through this period. And is that your, I don't even know if you're allowed to have a gut feeling when you're undertaking research (laughs) as a professor, but is that your gut feeling that sport might be a a beneficial aspect to what you're doing? Um, Absolutely. There's not a lot of research that looks at the relationship between sport and suicide. But we do know that sport is good for us. We know it's good for us physically and psychologically. And we also know that particularly people benefit psychologically from the, as I said, that camaraderie, that socialness of sport. So we have a sense that perhaps 
those women who do play sport, um, be it social or competitive sport, may be less likely to have mental health issues so they feel less depressed and less anxious and therefore less likely to take their own lives. What pro- can I ask you, Andrea, what prompted you to, to go down this path with the research? Um, it's, we were looking at the age range of the most at-risk women and it just struck us that um, there's quite a lot of research and intervention focused on young people, a suicide prevention intervention on young people. But there's actually not a lot of focus on middle-aged people, and that's both men as well as women, because this is an at-risk age for men as well. So we thought, well, what's happening here? What, how might we explain it? And of course, it struck us, and I'm working uh, with a student on this who's um, a youngish woman. We both sort of looked at each other and said, well, this is actually the age that women go through menopause. And we know from the menopause research that women have, are at increased risk of depression and anxiety, which are risk factors for suicide. And there's a tiny bit of research that suggests that perimenopausal women, that is women going through the menopause, um, are, tend to have more thoughts of taking their own lives and act on those than women who are pre and post. So that's how it sort of came about. Oh, this is a fascinating subject, I reckon, and one that we would never have ever thought about um, on a show like this had it not been for the work that you're doing. In and amongst all of the kind of mental health and the, and the physical realities that, that these women are going through um, mm-hmm. in this menopausal phase of their life, I wonder whether um, the domestic world, that their life for a lot of them changes as well. Their kids, if they're in that environment, grow up and move out. Um, they don't have that. They're not the sort of linchpin um, of, of a home if that is the environment they've been part of and, and, they, and they lose a bit of sense of, I don't know, sense of self a bit and connection to something and I wonder whether sports clubs and uh, organisations might um, be really important in, in, filling, in filling that void. Uh, you're absolutely right. So it is a change. Um, so it's a change we know biologic. It's a change of biological change period. Um, and physical, but also, as you've pointed out, women are, are changing. They, they change from being mothers, caring, typically caring for children to sometimes mm. caring for, for elderly parents. There might be relationship change. So there is this identity change. And I think sport clubs um, in particular could pay a, play a really critical role here. Because we know that, you know, and something like golf, which I think is a wonderful sport because it's both social and competitive and it can be at the same time. If someone was not having a good day and you're playing, you know, around, it might be just in a group of, you know, four um, women, that sense of, they get a sense of belonging and, and, and contributing to something that might be missing in their lives. So I think that sport um, and sport clubs are in particularly can really be beneficial for the well-being of women and men. Well, Andy and Andrea, I really appreciate both taking an interest in this. Uh, it's really important to us, and Shiloh Curtis, a big shout to her through her uh, Vision 2025 work for putting this to, to our attention. Um, I encourage everyone who's listening, if they know someone in their family or in their social group mm. who has a, a female um, in that age bracket between 
um, I think you said 40 to 59, Andrea, to get in touch with the University of Southern Queensland. We will put a story up on our website at golf.org.au of how to find that uh, survey directly. Or Andrea, do you mind if we encourage people to email you? That's fine. They can email me as well. Beautiful. So thank you. So it's Andrea, A-N-D-R-E-A dot Lamont, L-A-M-O-N-T hyphen Mills, M-I-L-L-S at usq.edu.au. So that's University of Southern Queensland, usq.edu.au for, for any additional information you might have. But yeah, we strongly encourage people to get involved. Not often you get a chance to be involved with sort of groundbreaking uh, research being done. And this is a great opportunity for those in the golf uh, community. Thank you. And thank you so much. And again, um, thank you to Shiloh. I had a great chat with her. And we really hope that we get some information that we can share back with your um, listeners as well. Thanks, Andrew. We look forward to catching up on that offer when uh, when you've got your study completed. Thanks very much for your time. Thank you. Oh, that's that's, that's awesome, really Andrea. interesting. Thank you. Yeah, that's yeah, yeah. That's good luck with that. It's a really interesting study you're doing. Thank you. Oh, that's fascinating. I, I, there's, I, I would never have thought when we started doing this 172 episodes ago that we would probably have ever had a conversation about the potential role that golf can play in dealing with, in this case, probably more specifically women, um, you know, menopausal women, of course. But, you know, when you think about it, when you, when you, you know, you've seen people go through this and uh, the sense of the, the, the significant change they go through and the potential for a game like golf to play a role in helping people get through these significant changes in life, um, it makes sense. It just I'd love to hear more about it down the track once the data has been collected and uh, conclusions are reached. I think it's a really interesting study. And I think also, Andy, when we have the opportunity to talk to someone like Andrea, it helps golf be at the forefront of that research so that we might get some golf-specific uh, information to bring back to our audience that we otherwise wouldn't have had. So, um, yeah, it's a different uh, route for us to take that one, but I think it's mm. really important. So thanks well, to Andrea. You know, the other thing too, Hazy, I mean, this, this goes to the whole nation, the whole notion of a club. You know, we, we know what, in our mind's eye, we know what a golf club is. We have this, this is what a golf club is. But if a golf club can just broaden the, you know, the spectrum and its own sense of what it is, um, it might be, these are the sorts of things that might become really important for some clubs, not all, but some clubs around Australia finding niches within um, their ba- their own boundaries that will see them become more than they perhaps ever imagined them, imagine themselves capable of being and maybe sort of helping them survive, you know, into the future. Who knows how important this sort of lateral thinking is going to be down the track? Yeah, well, one of the things we've been discussing here on so many different levels and it's high on the agenda for most Golf Australia conversations is how to make clubs more the communal hubs that they could be yeah, rather than what they have exactly. been. So, you know, if if one woman around Australia is, um, you know, in inverted commas, saved here because it's a, it's a brutal thing she's talking about. There's suicide rates horrendously high across the board at the moment. Uh, and we can get uh, a group of women that age coming together at a, at a golf club around Australia on a regular basis and alleviate a concern. Well, that would be magnificent in my eyes. So it's all about um, being happy and um, 
you know, having fun all of, to, to a degree, a lot of this. And our great mates at Bushnell, Paul McLean, I don't know what he's thinking here. Are we going to have beatboxers <laughs> just blaring out all over? Is this what McLean wants uh, golf to become? Is this, are we going to have sort of mobile DJs rolling around golf courses? What's going on here, Hazy? Well, you and I are going to have this discussion with Paul McLean directly next week because I, mm-hmm. I imagine we might take up some sort of contrary positions here, Andy, but... Bushnell, our great friends, as you say, and they're, and they're you know, love they're it, yardage mate. finders uh, without peer. I mean, they're they're pure. They're the best in the, the business. The best. They've put out they've put out this uh, new product called the Bushnell Wingman. Uh, <laughs> and we're going to talk about it at length next week. I'm just sort of flagging it here at the moment, but it's basically uh, the promotional aspect of it, and it's going gangbusters in the United States. Is unleash your inner DJ, Andy. So it's going to potential have the potential. <laughs> to have music booming out around the golf courses of Australia if this thing takes off. Can you imagine? I love it. I love it. I think having a having a bit of weddings parties and anything sort of going around in the background when I'm sort of descending onto a fine that I have to sort of carry over a body, that's not going to put me off at all. I've got far more issues than a bit of music in the background to worry about with my golf swing. But can you imagine some of the old crusty ones around the place going, oh, they're not going to have music in mine. Can you imagine the challenge that this is going to provide for a few old timers around the place, which I must admit I kind of love the idea of. Yeah, well, this is going to be the hub of a conversation next week, and we might get a few yep. of the Inside the Ropes hosts to put together their playlist, and that's what we're actually encouraging all of our listeners to do here. If they're interested in getting their um, little mitts on a Bushnell wingman, there's a competition. If you go through all the Golf Australia social media channels um, with the hashtag Bushnell wingman, all one word, um, we need you to submit your uh, Spotify playlist uh, we got to make it public, so you got to put your you got to put your musical colours up the flagpole for all to see, Andy. But we need you yep. to make your ten song golf playlist that you might be able to use on the Bushnell Wingman out on the course. I, I've already seen Martin Blake's for next week. It's an absolute cracker. Yes. Um, yes. It's uh, one worthy of discussion for for many an hour. But uh, we want everyone. There's ten wingmans to be won. Or is that wing men? I don't know. But this needs to be one in a competition that we're running. Um, and we'd really like to see, uh, you know, we, we've also, we've had a little dabble with music here. I think next week could be uh, the second time we have a bit of a sing-along on Inside the Ropes, if that's not enough. There might be any singing going on. No, no, no singing. But just, I, I can just imagine, I've probably upset a few old timers who are on their way to having a hit this morning. It's not just about music, by the way. This is also a, it's a virtual caddy, right? So, and we'll find out more with Mac next week about this. But it's got it's got about thirty six, thirty seven thousand courses loaded in into its data bank, and it can give you if you want to use it as such. It can give you a an audio like an audio distance finder. So you can be standing there, you park your car, and it'll go. You got. 142 to the front, 145 to the middle, 165 to the back. That front pin to carries 138, whatever. It'll actually give you the data verbally. It's a, uh, it's taken the whole thing to a whole new level, which which I do think is um, potentially a great source of fun. So um, I think we've got a lot to look forward to uh, with Macca next week. When we we find don't, out you don't have out. to have Fat Boy Slim blaring out, Andy, across the course. I mean, <laughs> no. you can have uh, Al Mozart? Dolson or whoever it is that takes your fancy. Well, well, that's Mozart. right. Always good. <laughs> Some sort of peaceful, sort of calming music if you need it. 
Um, so there's that to look forward to. Well, I'll tell you what, there's not too many corners of the spectrum that we haven't ticked off today on the show. We've had it just about all. Uh, good to see you. Uh, great to hear from Al and Bob Tui and everybody else involved in the show today. It's been um, informative and fun. Uh, hopefully you've enjoyed it as much as we have. Um, I'll see you next week. Cheers, Andy. Good on you. Mark Hayes joining us. Uh, thanks for being part of it. Inside the Ropes, episode 172. Uh, same time next week. We'll see you then.